Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning we're turning again to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We've slowed down a bit here in this chapter as we've looked carefully at this day of conflict and questions between Jesus and the religious authorities. We've seen uh, Jesus teach in response on the questions of judgment and of taxes and the nature of our resurrection hope and the crux of all God's commandments to call to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. Of course, we've seen Jesus answer each question with, with such wisdom and clarity and truth, with such knowledge of God's Word that it put the teachers of the law to shame. And we read at the very end of our passage last week, after that, no one dared to ask Him questions anymore. But the questions aren't over because now Jesus has a question for the religious authorities, a question that will force them to confront the central truth they were missing about who he was as the Messiah. We're going to read just a few verses this morning. And so if you would follow with me as we read Mark 12, verses 35 to 37. This is God's word. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Father, we pray that you would use this passage of your word, apply it to our hearts. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. In July of 1961, the Green Bay Packers reported for their summer training camp. Now the Packers' season had ended uh, the year before with a heartbreaking loss in the NFL championship game, and the team was coming together ready to press forward, to to grow, to do new things, that they might get better and take their game to the final step. Their coach, Vince Lombardi, stood to open camp, and he said to this group of seasoned, lifelong football players, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he went on to teach them how to block and how to tackle and how to run the simplest of place. And certainly to this team who wanted to move forward, it felt like they were moving backward. But Lombardi had a point, and his point was to take them back to the basics, back to the fundamentals which they had to master in order to succeed. Basketball coach John Wooden was also uh, famous for starting with the basics. He reportedly began coaching every basketball season by teaching each player how to put on socks and how to tie their shoes, and moving from there. Well, in a way, that's what I want to do this morning. We're going to go back to the basics. Because just like for these sports players, our salvation is not dependent upon learning something creative and new or complex that we've never heard before. No, it depends upon knowing and believing the fundamental truths of Christianity, which God reveals in His Word. In this passage, Jesus opens up Scripture and asks a simple and straightforward question. And his goal is to make it clear that the Christ 
is the Son of God. That's really the main point of this passage, that the Christ is the Son of God. But in the process, Jesus' words establish and affirm three of the most basic and fundamental truths of our faith. What Scripture is and why we can trust it. Who God is and what He is like. And who the Christ is and why we should put our faith in Him. And so our goal this morning is to work through these three fundamental truths from Jesus' words. And we'll start with Scripture, what it is and why we can trust it. We read here that Jesus was teaching in the temple when he asked a question. And in order to ask the question, he first turned back to the Old Testament Scriptures, to Psalm 110, verse 1. But as he does so, would you notice in verse 36 how Jesus describes the Scriptures? He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Now with these words, Jesus affirms that the Old Testament was written by men, by men like David. However, when those men wrote Scripture, they did not do so on their own, but they did so in the Holy Spirit. In other words, men wrote the Bible under the direction of and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And if the words of Scripture are written at the direction of and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then it is right to call them God's words, just as we would call a letter that's dictated by the President of the United States and written down by a scribe, a letter from the President. In the same way, these words, inspired by, directed by the Holy Spirit, are the words of God. This is the same thing that the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, when he said, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, no man sat down and decided from his own will to write these words. No, he says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul affirms the same thing in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that it is, it is His words that He inspired and supplied to those men who wrote them down. And so we have Scripture affirming over and over again that this is His words. And that is why at the bedrock of Christianity is the Bible. Not because we idolize a book, And not because we just want to, you know, keep doing things the traditional way. No, the Bible is the bedrock of Christianity because we believe it is the one place in which God himself speaks to us and reveals himself to us and his will to us and guarantees its truth as his word. Now, of course, it takes effort to study and understand God's word. There is historical context to be considered There are different genres that speak in in different ways. At times we need to consider translation of words. We may have certain assumptions in our own hearts that we need to examine because we're all influenced by our cultural context and we might need to examine our own hearts. There are questions we may not know the answers to or we may debate how certain passages are, are interpreted. But in spite of all of these things that are all part of understanding God's Word, none of them undermines the authority or the clarity, or the necessity of the Scriptures, which Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.17, give us everything we need for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, everything to make us wise for salvation, that the man of God 
may be complete. After all, the root of what Jesus affirms is this. The Bible was written down by the inspiration of God's Spirit Himself. And if the Bible is God's Word, then it comes with all of the surety, all the guarantee, all the authority, all of the truth, and all the reliability of God Himself. We can trust it. We should desire it. We ought to obey it. It is worth putting our hope and trust in because this God is the unchangeable and solid rock for our souls, and it is His Word. And that is the first basic, fundamental truth that Jesus highlights in these words today. That is what Scripture is and why we can trust it. But second, Jesus teaches us who God is and what He is like. And here's where things get a bit interesting. I'm going to spend more of my time on this point. Because the reality is all of the scribes and the Pharisees and and the people listening to Jesus would have agreed with this first point, that the Bible was the Word of God and could be trusted. But now Jesus goes on to press something that breaks their categories. Let's remember the context here. You remember in last week's passage, Jesus talked about the first great commandment. And after he did so, the scribe said to Jesus, You are right, teacher, for you have truly said that God is one, and he alone is God. Now, we don't know exactly what was in the scribe's mind here. He might have just been affirming the truth that Jesus had explained. But one has to wonder, given Jesus' reputation as the one who had claimed the authority to forgive sins, the one who had said he was the Son of God, the one who, according to John, had taken God's own name, I am who I am, to himself, the one who had ridden a donkey from the Mount of Olives as if he was the coming of the Lord. And one wonders, does the scribe want to emphasize to Jesus, right, Jesus, God is one, and there is only one God. So watch your words. We don't know for sure. But one wonders. But the scribe has just emphasized that God is one. But in response to that statement, Jesus poses his question. He begins with a point of agreement that the Christ is the son of David. And once again, all of his listeners would have agreed because they all would have known Jeremiah 23, 5, where God promised a righteous branch from David who would rule as king. And they would have all known Ezekiel 34, 23, where God promised to set over his people one shepherd, my servant David, who will be prince among them. And so everyone agreed the Messiah would be a descendant of David. But then Jesus appealed to another passage in Scripture, Psalm 110, verse 1. And once again, all of the Jews agreed this verse was talking about the Messiah. But Jesus says, Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus says, David calls the Christ his Lord. So how then is he also his son? Now let's just look at some details to make sure we understand exactly what's happening here. When Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, it uses two different words in Hebrew for Lord. It uses Yahweh, which is God's name for himself, the I am who I am, a covenant-keeping God. And it uses Adonai, also a name for God. It means the absolutely sovereign one. These are two different names, both translated Lord, both applied to God. You might even think of Psalm 8, verse 1, 
where both words are used right next to each other for the Lord. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And, and in Hebrew, it is O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so we have these two words capturing something of the character of God, both who refer to God, but in Psalm 110, Yahweh seems to be speaking to Adonai. There seems to be a conversation happening within God himself or among God himself. And what Jesus makes clear from Scripture is that the one God of Deuteronomy 6.4 is somehow also three distinct persons. So that Yahweh can speak to Adonai and the words can be revealed to David by the Holy Spirit. This, of course, is what the church has called the doctrine of the Trinity. And while the word Trinity is not used in Scripture, the truth of it is demonstrated all over Scripture, that there is one God, but in three distinct persons. We've already seen this reflected in Mark chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism, when God speaks to Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. Before Jesus uh, rises uh, to heaven, he commands his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so we see these three persons of the Godhead reflected in Scripture. In addition, the Bible is very clear to affirm that Jesus, the Son, is himself God, as is the Holy Spirit. You might think of John 1.1, for instance. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There's a distinction there. And yet the Word was God. He is fully God. The Holy Spirit is also not just some vague spiritual force of God's power, but is a person who can be lied to, according to uh, Acts 5.4. And he is a person who can be grieved, according to Ephesians 4.30. And so the truth that Jesus indicates that there is one God who exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is reflected and affirmed all throughout Scripture. Unfortunately, the Trinity is one of those doctrines that is difficult for us to understand and so at times difficult for us to take the delight in that we ought to. But I want to affirm this morning that the Trinity is not just in Scripture and it's not just something that the church has affirmed as one of the most essential doctrines of our faith, but it is actually one of the most delightful doctrines about God. And so it's worth taking time to understand it. Now, There have been all sorts of analogies used to try to help us understand how one God can exist in three persons. And you've probably heard some of them. You can be thinking of them in your mind. Maybe you've heard of the three-leaf clover that's associated with Patrick. Or maybe you've heard of one egg that is shell and egg white and egg yolk. Or or maybe you've heard of uh, uh, one person who is at the same time husband and father and son in three different relationships. Or maybe you've heard of water, which is one substance but can appear in uh, solid, liquid, or gas. There's all of these, these analogies that are used. Unfortunately, if pressed precisely, every one of these analogies has been condemned as heresy by the church. And there's others we might say. Uh, there's uh, a musical analogy of a chord, three distinct notes that make up one musical entity. But, but in the end, what we have to affirm is that God is categorically above us. There is not one analogy that can perfectly categorize or, or, or show us what it means that God is three in one. Because God is not just one person who has three different parts, like an egg or a clover. 
And God is not just one who has three different forms or roles, like a father, son, and husband in one person. He is not that. He is one God and three distinct persons. And the question is, well, if we're going to go to the effort to affirm this thing that we have trouble grasping, why is that so important? Well, theologian Michael Reeves writes this. He says, the importance of the Trinity is not about numbers. It's about who God is and how he operates. And the fact that the triune God operates as he does is a stunning reason for delight and for worship. Think about it this way. If God was just a single God and not triune, what was he doing before the creation of the world from all eternity? Was he by himself, sitting alone, wishing he had someone to love? As Reeves puts it, for all his cosmic power, this single God turns out to be quite weak. If God created us so that he could be the loving God he always wanted to be, we would be actually giving God the life he wanted rather than him giving us life. But the Trinity declares otherwise. In his very being, God has from all eternity been dwelling in perfect love and utter joy in himself as the Father has been loving the Son and the Son has been loving the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit so that he was fully himself in all of his glorious character without any lack from all eternity to all eternity. This impacts how we think about all sorts of things. Think of creation. Creation is not just an idea of a God who had nothing else to do or an opportunity to show off his power. No, creation was this overflowing outpouring of God whose life and love in himself was so great and so pure and so holy that he delighted to express it and to share it and to demonstrate it in a creation teeming with life. Just go outside sometime. Listen to brooks bubbling and birds singing and lizards scurrying and squirrels chasing. There is a constant hum of life and beauty and activity and all of this is a reflection of this God who is himself life, infinitely so, from all eternity. The Trinity changes how we think about salvation too. Salvation is not merely our sins being forgiven by a merciful person. It is the glorious news of our sins being forgiven so that we can be restored to fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The story of Scripture goes like this. God the Father loved the Son so fully and gloriously in the fellowship of the Spirit that He decided to create humans in His image so that they could share in His love and fellowship and delight in His glory to the praise of His name. But then Adam and Eve decided that they wanted an apple or their independence more than their fellowship with God. And yet God, against all logic, decided to send that son that he loved so much to death and then raise him from the dead in order to bring those sinners back into fellowship with him so that once again they might behold his glory and know the joy of being in fellowship with him. Just this week, One of our supported missions organizations, One for Israel, forwarded the testimony of a Muslim man who had given his life for jihad. He had memorized the entire Koran. And think about that, and may that put some uh, shame to our sense of devotion to the Lord and to his word. But he'd memorized the whole thing, and yet he began to realize how few answers Islam had to his intellectual questions. 
And so disillusioned, he became an atheist. But God pursued him. And in a dream, Jesus summoned him to follow him. And after several years of discipleship, this man proclaimed faith in Christ and was baptized. And in the closing sentences of his testimony, this man declared that the thing that overwhelmed him, the thing that was categorically different from anything he had known before, or anything he heard or was, could be associated with Allah, was the overflowing love and grace of God to pursue someone like him that he might be in fellowship with this God. And why was he exactly right? Because our God is triune. He is categorically different. And so acts and lives and pours himself out with this life and love. God's triunity also changes how we can think about relationships. Just think practically. If God is triune, then being in relationship with one another isn't just something we decided to do here on earth. It's not just something that we decided would be a good idea. No, it's part of how we image God. We are in relationship because we are in His image and He is a triune God in relationship. And each member of the Trinity fully loves the other and gives himself for the sake of the other as the Father glorifies the Son and the Son obeys and accomplishes the salvation that the Father and He had agreed to and the Spirit magnifies the Son and brings about the will of the Father. And this is, this is our pattern of relationships, that we live together and give ourselves to one another in, in love. And just think about the impact that has on understanding ourselves as the body of Christ. As fellow believers, we've been brought back into fellowship with this triune God. And now we give ourselves in love for one another. Oh, why do we pursue one another and bear with one another and reconcile with one another and focus on, on one another? Well, we're to be in relationship with one another in a way that reflects and images our God, both in His being and how He has given Himself for us. That's a, that's a motivation for us in our relationships. And my prayer is that going back to this basic truth of Christianity, that God is one and yet three persons, will spur us to greater joy and greater worship and greater fellowship with Him and one another as we contemplate the God who is one and three. And that's the second fundamental truth this morning. Then we have one more. Finally, our third fundamental of Christianity has to do with who Jesus is. On the one hand, the Christ is the Son of God. He is a man born from Mary, a descendant of David, and in the city of Bethlehem, the city of David. This Christ was fully human. But David calls Christ his Adonai. You see that here in, in the verse that Jesus refers to. And when David calls the Christ his Adonai, that implies both that Christ already existed, he's already speaking to my Lord, and it implies that Christ was so far superior to David that David would call him my absolute sovereign one. So how, Jesus asks, can the Christ be both David's son or descendant and his Lord? To which the experts of the law had no answer. But the answer, as Jesus proclaimed, was that the Christ, yes, was a human descendant of David, but he was also fully God. As Colossians 2.9 says, in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is Jesus Christ our Lord, descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power 
by the resurrection from the dead, according to Romans 1, 3, and 4. In other words, this Christ that we have believed in and whom we've put our trust was a real man who lived in history. For only another human being could die in our place and take the punishment that we as humans deserved. But he was not merely human. He was and is fully God. He is the perfect and infinite Son of God. And as a result, death could not hold him. But God raised him from the dead and he has now exalted him to his right hand until the day when he comes in power and authority and every tongue will confess him as Lord once again. And when that happens, all of us who are united to this Jesus by faith will be secure under his rule in his kingdom in perfect fellowship with him forever. That's the hope we're looking forward to. Because of who Christ is. The very truth that Psalm 110 pointed to. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So the question for us who trust in Christ is this. What do we do while we wait for that day when Christ will return? Well, R.C. Sproul says we should be like Robin Hood. That's a bit of an unusual uh, twist, perhaps, but here's what Sproul said. He said, The legend of Robin Hood says that King Richard left England to fight in the Crusades. And while he was gone, Prince John ruled the country, abusing the people and using the realm for his own benefit. But Robin and his band became outlaws in order to oppose Prince John and show their loyalty to King Richard. Disguised as a monk, though, at the end of the story, Richard returns. And he goes through Sherwood Forest on purpose. And as he expected, Robin and his band waylay Richard and try to relieve him of his purse. And Richard asks, why are you doing this? And Robin replies, because of my allegiance to my king. And Richard takes off his guise and reveals who he is. And Robin falls down on his knees in honor. And Richard knights Robin because of his faithfulness to him during his absence. And Sproul says this story is the perfect metaphor for the church. Our king is seated at the right hand of God. And he calls us as his people to remain loyal to him while the whole world has gone after Prince John. To be loyal to him while we wait until he returns again to put all things right. And this will happen Because Jesus is the Adonai, the absolutely sovereign one. The one God has promised in Psalm 110 that he will put all things under his feet. And so the question for us as we end this morning is where do we stand with this king? God the Father has sent his son to redeem all who have put their trust in him through his shed blood for us. And his son right now is at his right hand awaiting the day of his final victory. And God has proven this by raising Jesus from the dead. And he has told us of it in his word through the Holy Spirit that we might believe in his name. And now every one of us has either submitted to this Adonai, this Lord in faith and followed him, or we are rebels against the rightful king awaiting judgment when he returns. And all this Jesus holds before us this morning and asks us to consider as he returns to the basics and reminds us of what scripture is and why we can trust it and who God is and why that matters 
and who the Christ is and why we should put our trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, himself God, to become man, that he might give himself and shed his blood in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. Oh, Father, may we come to him in faith. May we put our trust in him and follow him. May he be our whole hope. Father, as we come to this table now, would you comfort our hearts and assure our hearts of the truth of this gospel? And Father, if there is anyone here who is not submitting themselves to you in faith, oh, would they come to know Christ as their Savior? Father, would we be ready for your return, waiting for you, loyal for you, until you come and all your enemies are put under your feet and you are exalted and every tongue confess you as Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.